Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Welcome to the Nest of Vipers podcast, cultural chit-chat for know-it-alls, ne'er-do-wells, and nattering nabobs everywhere. I'm your host, Danny Plotnick, and each week on the show, we have an esteemed panel of blabbermouths riffing on cultural topics of the utmost importance. And today, we're going to talk about teaching. And given that I've been teaching high schoolers, college students, and other humans of various ages for nearly 17 years, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So let me start by introducing today's professorial panel. And we're going to start with Bruce Lamott. Currently, I'm teaching with Bruce in high school. Bruce has been teaching for 27 years. He teaches choir, orchestra, Western civilization. He's taught college students, graduate students, and most recently, again, high school students. Bruce, say hello. Good morning. And, you know, and let me say that my favorite part of the week is hanging out in the teacher's lounge, listening to Bruce hold court on Every topic known to humankind. I think that's fair to say. I think that's true. <laughs> All right, right here. Uh, one of my favorite human beings, Doreen Dykey, has been teaching English composition at San Francisco State University for over 17 years. I know. Ha- scary. <laughs> halfway to retirement. And you have, a new, you have a new motto that you live by that speaks to teaching in the state school system. Yeah, I do have a new motto. My new motto is getting you to the middle class since 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think state can use that on their, uh, Don't their you missions think? brochure. Don't you I think they'll be pretty excited about that. And uh, finally, we have Jan Richmond, poet, author of Because the Brain Can Be Talked Into Anything. And Jan is primarily a writer who takes teaching gigs to pay the rent. Is that fair, yeah, fair to right say? Now I'm, right now I'm editing to pay the rent, but I have done that, and I'm still, I still teach once a week just to keep a hand in. Fantastically, Jan ended up amidst one of the great teaching controversies <laughs> of the last couple years, and we're going to get to that a little later, but right now we're going to start with Bruce. Well, my story, Danny, isn't exactly right out of the classroom, but certainly related to it. Um, well, staying on topic would has nothing to do with this podcast <laughs> whatsoever, so it's actually perfect that we start with someone not talking about what I've, I've said, uh, said the real uh, Then I'll, I'll, I'll fill the bill very well. <laughs> Excellent. This happened about 10 years ago, and uh, it's still maybe my favorite story about kids and schools and all that kind of thing. For about the last 20 years, I've been the kind of instigator of a panel talking to our sophomores as part of the health curriculum about gay and lesbian issues started out as a homophobia panel it was basically <laughs> about uh, about uh, queer bashing and the castro and the like and like um, sort of thing? Th- that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. it started because the very small amount of of discussion that they ever had on these issues was always we always left it to the guest artists because none of the faculty were really out to the kids and it was driving me crazy these kids i would see every day would be asking total strangers questions that they could have asked me in class and so i finally had enough. And, I'm sure uh, they would have felt very comfortable raising their hands. <laughs> well, exactly. And and the other thing was, uh, the only person that I had seen to date who was openly gay speaking to our students was talking about a terminal disease because AIDS was brand new and scaring the pajabbers out of the kids. So anyway, I, I had a very mild coming out experience with my class right after lunch. So I just said, you know, it's probably no great surprise to anybody in the room that <laughs> I'm gay, and I don't expect to talk about it anymore, but I heard you asking questions today of 
total strangers. You, you could have been asking drop. me. Yeah, it was pretty quiet. And <laughs> Wait, like what kind of questions? Well, all, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, how, when did you know you were gay? Uh, and, you know, how did, did you, your parents know? And do you want to have kids? The usual thing. And I got to say, in those days, there were many more kind of veiled curiosities about plumbing and things like that that just uh, uh, aren't... Gotcha. particularly the the case anymore. So fade to black, and 10 years later, this is now a 10-year-old panel. And as usual, at the end of the panel, and, and typically what we, we try to do is have a couple of gay teachers uh, now out parents of kids or kids who are out whose parents are willing to come, particularly alumni. So it's, it's really quite a nice mix and a highlight of my year. And the particular reason that I got involved was that it's for the sophomores and I teach all the sophomores. I'm a graduation requirement, but I always just make the point, you know, you don't have to like me, but you've had me for a class and therefore you can't go through life saying you never knew a gay person. So I'm sitting there and we're having the Q&A and one of the kids said, you know, you guys have been talking this up about how great it is to be gay and lesbian and, and all that. What's the downside? And I was feeling kind of ironic or something at the moment. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I just came back from my brother's fourth wedding. This is true. (laughs) And it amazed me because they were still getting stuff. You know, (laughs) they were getting crystal and they were getting toasters from Williams-Sonoma. They were getting, you know, and and, uh, I went into this big to-do about how my partner, who I've now been with 35 years at that point, I guess it was more like 25, uh, basically had our own silverware, you know, and we went... You still had the same old crappy toaster that had you had. Sa- same crap that we had in graduate school in some respects. And so I said, you know, I, it, there just seems to be a law, there ought to be a law about all this stuff. And everybody had a good chuckle and it was all over and we went to lunch. And three o'clock at the end of the day, a senior who had been in, by that point, eight semesters of my classes, he was very musical. He was in the singing group. He played in the jazz band. Well, he did have an astronomical GPA and was just involved in anything. And at that particular point, he was the lead in the Music Man, which was in which you don't have heavy to sing rehearsal. For, actually, <clears throat> well, no, he could have, but he didn't. Anyway, knocks on my office. You door. don't have to sing for the Music Man. Yeah, what, that, <laughs> it's a t- who was the famous guy who did the Music Man. Uh, Robert Preston. Preston. Yeah, he like talks sings through it because yeah, he can't as really bad as sing. Henry Higgins in in <laughs> My Fair Lady. Yeah, but. it's the talk sing thing. You gotta which sing I, to Marion a little bit, but nah. they don't really in the movie. Yeah. I can't really. You oh, can wait, do the oh, talk you're, doing, you're talking about the movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the movie. Yeah. Well, that's because he couldn't sing. Right, because he can't sing. <laughs> right, it's like, it's like Rex Got Morrison, it, yeah, you know. it's like that. You work with what you have. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And River City, you just have to be able to yeah. rhyme a lot mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and spell. Yeah, and talk fast. So anyway, 3.30 comes around, end of the day, and knock on my office door, and here's Michael. And he says, I got to get to rehearsal here. And he hands me a big shopping bag. Inside it is a cuisine art toaster and wedding paper. <laughs> From Williams Sonoma, this kid cut his afternoon classes, drove downtown, bought a toaster, got a card, says, after 25 years, at least you should have a toaster. Love, Michael. 
What a sweetheart. And it was absolutely, it absolutely devastates me. I'm already verklempt yeah. <laughs> every time I tell the story. And well, he was, I love that he cut class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that. Like, and I mean, he was not that kind of kid. And you know how far it is to get downtown. I mean, it really yeah. took an effort. You got to go down. You got to park. Take a you bus. Got, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got to lay out some bucks, which was not a big problem for him. But, <laughs> but it was just so unbelievably thoughtful. And of course, he had the tackiest, you know, silver wedding yeah, paper that they that. had. <laughs> which is perfect. <laughs> it was, it was absolutely, you know, and that toaster has sort of been in a shrine in our house ever since. Don't put any you bread know, in don't, it. Don't ever toast. <laughs> well, the, the, so fade to black. Ten years later, Michael goes off to Yale. And is a superstar and is already completed. Did he ask you for a letter of recommendation? Oh, yeah, like he needed one. <laughs> Falls in love with a guy in his acapella group. Now, mind you, at this particular point, by the way, Yale acapella group, so it wasn't as dangerous in those days as it is Oh, right, is that's now. the Yale acapella group. Exactly. That's, that's the big police controversy. The Yale acapella got people. Beat up they got beat up. San Francisco. Yeah. Got yes. beat up in San Francisco this year by... Rich hooligans. Basically. Something like that. I don't know if his name was Rich, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> the thing was, Michael was never out with me, but we we just had the non-conversation. It was sort of... Did, I, you, did you know? I was pretty. Sure. Yeah. I mean, good God, he was in theater, right? No, yeah. uh, <laughs> not true. We, we just kept having the non-conversation, and it, I never, ever ask a kid point blank. Don't think it's any of my business. And he was very interested in my life, and his family was very interested in our life, and and it was kind. Of, but he was very excited to tell me by his junior year that he had found true love. Well, here we are at the <laughs> a couple summers ago at the commitment ceremony under the chuppah, and guess what I gave them for their. <laughs> Wedding present. (laughs) But of course, except Michael, of course, Michael being very precise, he said, you know, what we really need is a toaster oven. (laughs) So they got it. Can't get good toaster ovens anymore. Ours just broke. And we had had to convert to a regular toaster. They they now Uh make the toaster ovens. They're really essentially second ovens. And they're so large that it takes about eight or nine minutes to toast a piece of toast. Oh, we should talk. Wow. Uh, I, I wish we had this conversation several exactly, weeks ago. Exactly, because I just got a toaster oven for the faculty room at school. What I wonder and is when you go to Williams-Sonoma to get a wedding gift and you have them wrap it, is there a separate wrap for gay wedding and regular uh, wedding? Ooh, um, <laughs> there should be if there's not, there, right? there, there should indeed. Well, they have the two grooms on the cake, right? So you can oh, that's true, yeah. Absolutely. The two grooms' wrapping paper could be a whole like industry. <laughs> With the rainbow yeah. ribbons. So this is kind of the subtext of what goes on in teaching all the time, which is, you know, you, you have your life and your teaching, and at least in a certain generation, those were kept very, very separate. And nowadays, they're, they're really not. I guess the other thing is that a lot of this kind of delayed fuse... You know, the way I interacted with Michael for four years was not the, yes, I'll be your fairy godfather kind of thing. It didn't wasn't explicit like that, but he was certainly receiving positive messages and yeah, no, stuff absolutely. like that. Do the gay kids come and find the gay teachers in a way for advice? Does that happen? Uh, no. A kid who is peering out of the closet door, I think, is m- more likely to go to a teacher, often of the opposite sex, uh, who they know is gay-friendly, 
Yeah, that's uh, because me. I they're get not that gonna, you get that. I get that <laughs> yeah. all the time. Well, I get You'd actually be good at that. I get yeah. a lot of like lesbians on the fence. I don't get the like hardcore. I'm there lesbian types. I get the like maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And I mean, I think in conversation, I say that I'm married to a man and have a daughter, but. I get a lot of, you know, just like, hi, and here's my friend, and a lot of that. And somehow I've just become, like, the friend to the to the gay students. But male and female, and a lot. I, don't, I, don't, mm-hmm. I haven't really figured out why. And I sort of jokingly said it to my supervisor, who's gay, and her girlfriend. And, I, and oh, because we were complaining about how, like, now we're too old, and the cute boys don't like us anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I used to be able to get that 25-year-old boy, but, you know. Hanging out in office <laughs> hours. <laughs> Just, you know, you knew they had a crush on you. It was all innocent, but... Um, and so anyway, I was like, we were at a party and I was joking, we were jokingly complaining about how we're all getting old and like none of the cute boys like us anymore. And I'm like, yeah, the only ones who have crushes on me now are the lesbians. And so my supervisor and her girlfriend both laughed and they're like, well, of course. And then like walked away. And so I never really felt like, what's what? the miss? Why, why are the lesbians <laughs> in love with me? I have no idea. <laughs> Recalls a story our, our women's PE teacher tells who was in her younger days days at the school she was she was a part-time uh, bartender and uh, just had a great life and well no and wonder she, the students were glomming on oh, to her they were glomming <laughs> on to her but she was saying that uh, that a couple years ago and she says i was sitting in my office giving some kind of advice to a young woman and it had to do with romance and she says i all all of a sudden i the she just wasn't reacting. And I was saying the same thing that I've said year after year to young women. And she says, suddenly I realized that she was looking at an old lady. <laughs> and that the same words were coming out of the mouth of an older woman rather than the mm-hmm. hip 20-something. Right. Yeah. And so even though the message is delivered with the same enthusiasm from us, right. whatever, the same thing that I might have said that was kind of edgy and fun and flirtatious when I was Younger. 31 right. is coming out of the mouth of a dirty old man now. Right. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Or the moment when slang goes very wrong, you use some kind yeah. of hip yeah. slang thing. Oh, no, I think I, I, think I uh, sometime this year I, I use the phrase going ape. Or something, right. you know, and people are just like, "What are you talking about?" Oh. Like, that doesn't make any sense to you. They're like, I don't. They're like, I don't understand a thing that you're saying. Going ape, really? And I was like, I was like, oh man, you know, I wasn't even trying to be hip or anything. Just kind of, I was just talking. I was using words. I'll tell you one that that almost got me into into hot water. I was lecturing to Western Civ, and a, a young woman answered a question very accurately, and I said, "You bet your sweet bippy." <laughs> and I could just tell there were, first of all, there was only kind of nervous laughter. And then there was that, did he just step over the sexual harassment line or not? What is the, what is the bippy? What is the bippy? And if you go to the random house underbridge dictionary, which I quickly did and looked up bippy, it said something like an unidentified body part made popular by the early days of laugh in. But I suddenly ah. realized that there wasn't a person in the room who had ever seen Laugh-In. And there was a, a real standoff because they weren't quite sure if I had stepped over that sexism line or not. And should they be offended or amused? Well, they're so studious. They probably, too, went to the random house. Dictionary, like, <laughs> an unidentified body part. My goodness. <laughs> All right, Doreen, do you want to... Jump in. Sure. I was going to tell uh, not the, such a happy story. <laughs> not that it's unhappy, but just not as, you know, 
positive as yours. I was going to tell the stories of stupid well, students. Well, teaching, it's, it's, <laughs> positive, it's the good with the bad. They're the, the good, good the students, bad. the not well, so good students. Part of the reason why I wanted to tell the stupid student story was because I have a lot of smart students, but smart students say smart things in context. So you're talking about something, they'll make some kind of analysis. Uh, oh, well, I think he's just really jealous. And everyone will turn and go, oh, we hadn't thought of that. So, But those stories don't translate very well. Like You have to give a lot of context, and then the other people are going to be like, got to give the backstory uh-huh, yeah, yeah. of the Charles And then the other Dickens people are novel. like, uh-huh. You know, so, but the, the stupid student stories, are everybody can you know relate to because they're stupid. <laughs> they're universal. They make us feel good about ourselves. Exactly. And I have to say that the stupid students are not who you would think. They are not at, at the CSU where I teach. Um, they're not the remedial students because to get in as a freshman, you actually have to do stuff and you have to be like in the top 30 of your graduating class or get a certain amount of ASAT score or whatever. So the reason why they're in remedial English is because, you know, they... So English comp, what you teach, is essentially remedial English. No, it's not. You can either come in and you have to take remedial English or you come in and you take regular English. So I teach both. So the remedial students are the ones whose parents, you know, don't speak English. English or the ones whose parents never read a book to them and just kept them in the basement with grandma watching Jerry Springer and you know, <laughs> until the day they had to go show up to school. So they can actually learn. They're not stupid. They just, you know, haven't. So they're not the ones that are dumb. The ones that are dumb are the transfer students because in case you have a dumb kid, here's what you need to know to get into a CSU. California State University. California State University. You have your kid go to an accredited school. And let me tell you, apparently the the qualifications for accreditation are very low. Any accredited school anywhere, and all they have to do is finish their freshman requirements, and then we take them automatically. What are accredited schools? Oh, okay. So here's one of them. The University of Phoenix, which you can... Oh, I've been wondering. I've been and seeing the ads, and I've recently asked, what is the University of Phoenix? So you basically pay, and they give you credits. I mean, apparently there's coursework, but it's clearly not at all challenging, because I had this one woman. So anyway, once you're a transfer, then you have to take sophomore lit, which is introduction to lit, and you have to write, like, literary analysis, which it really isn't that easy, right? So in the beginning of the semester, I have, on the first day, a diagnostic essay where I say, pick a work of art, and I'm not going to quibble with you about what Art is anything you think is well, it's art. Jerry Springer. Yeah, I mean anything. It's fine, right? Um, But just write about it and say why you either thought it was the greatest work of art or like you loathed it. It was the worst work of art ever. And it's just a short little essay, so I can see, you know, can they write a sentence and do they have any understanding of what criticizing something is, right? So this one woman from the University of Phoenix. Uh, writes this one diagnostic essay about Three's Company, completely without <laughs> irony. No irony at all. <laughs> right? <laughs> with, with, with Susan Summer still in the show, or yeah, yeah, is it, yeah. was it a later Three's no, Company? No, no, no. It's basically like Three's Company is great, is the thesis. And then each paragraph was like, Jack is funny. He falls down. Jack is funny. Well, and the great thing is you Chrissy back- is funny. She falls down. Chrissy is well, funny. Well, but you've also backed yourself into a corner because you're not going to be quibbling, you know. <laughs> On what art is those moments where you kind of make sort of promises as a teacher that kind of backfire you could have written a great essay with irony about three's company i mean there could have been something done and i was like oh my god like this woman's supposed to be at a university as a sophomore and i was like i could get her a tutor but like what is the tutor gonna do with her i mean so was i was she older like she was a little bit older she, she was remembered three's company from when it was right on. yeah okay. yeah you know maybe she was 30, okay. you know, maybe, I don't know. You know. No language problem. 
No, 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 no it's English fine okay. and just dumb. See, just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> this is we all go. my stories are going to be the just dumb. Like it's yeah, it's struggling as a teacher because you're always looking for something and you really don't something to build on. Yeah. <laughs> what can I do? This isn't good. I can't. You can't say E. This is horrible. Yeah. F. Yeah, yeah. You just like it's just dumb. Like I had another student and we were reading. Did you ever read? The- well, what did you do? I sent her a tutoring and I failed her. I mean, that's the only thing you can only do with all these students. I mean, all I basically said to her was, I mean, she needed, even remedial English would have been too challenging for her. It's a university. Like, you can't, she couldn't think at all. I mean, I just said to her, well, try tutoring and see where it goes. I go, you really shouldn't be at this level, but your credits get you in. And, you know, there isn't really anything you can do about it. It's That's her situation. I mean, I don't know why... She shouldn't have been in a university. She wasn't smart enough. There wasn't there isn't really anything you could do. I mean, you can learn critical thinking skills, but if you haven't and you're thirty and you have none, you're not going to get very. It's far a late in start. Yeah, <laughs> you're not getting very far in college. But in the in the state university system, you can actually can use the D word. I mean, I, I Danny, I can't oh. imagine. You oh, to in, someone's in face, kind of I didn't tell dumb. her to her face. She was dumb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. I definitely did not call oh, her no. dumb to her no, face. I, I said she imagine. didn't have, which is what you always say. I said she didn't really have the skills for the course. Okay, so my other story is: Did you ever read that book, The Things I Carried, by Tim O'Brien? Yeah, it's this book, an interconnected short stories about soldiers in Vietnam. They could pick any story in the whole book and write a paper on it. And I had this one student who was so dumb and he picked this story first of all it's only two pages long like you're gonna write a whole paper don't pick a story that's two pages long I mean I don't even think we discussed it in class you know like there's nothing much to say about a two story page thing and so the story is about these two um, soldiers who make this pact that if they ever get shot and they're gonna be in a wheelchair that they would just kill each other because they didn't want to be in a wheelchair right so then of course one of them gets shot and then as soon as he gets shot he screams to the other guy don't kill me don't kill me don't kill me and then he winds up backing dying. yourself into yeah. a corner. These packs can just get you in trouble. And then he winds up dying, like uh, on the way out anyway. And then the other guy feels relieved because he didn't know what to do. And that's the entire story, right? So this kid says to me, "I want to write about this story." And I'm like, "Well, uh, okay, there's not much to say. It's sort of self-explanatory. I don't really know what you can say." But I'm like, "Why did you want to write about this story?" He's like, "Well, you know, because like the guy doesn't want to be in a wheelchair." And I'm like, uh-huh, well, why do you think he makes that pact then about, like, not being in the wheelchair? And it's obviously, like, about the bravado men have at war to get through the difficult time, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, because he doesn't want to be a wheelchair guy. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, he's just one of those guys who doesn't want to be in a wheelchair. And I'm, like, thinking in the back of my head, well, no one wants to be in a wheelchair, you idiot. <laughs> Who wants to be a wheelchair guy? Like, what kind of observation is that? So then I'm like, all right, new tactic. Think, think, think. And I'm like, what? Like, well, why? What's the whole story about then? He's like, well, you know, it's just not wanting to be a wheelchair guy. Like, I wouldn't want to be a wheelchair guy. I'm a waiter. And I really couldn't do my job if I was in a wheelchair. And so, Technically, I think you could, right? I mean, you could zip around the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, <laughs> not what this dude went. Then proceeds to write a three-page paper about, like, how hard it would be for him to do his job if he was in a wheelchair and that's the paper he has in. And your comments on You know, like, what do you say? I mean, I actually remember talking to somebody What did you say? Because that's some of the, I mean, the great moments of teaching. If someone hands in an assignment, yeah. I mean, where you really have to work to come up with something to say. Yeah. And for me, one of the tough things is because I teach film, people will show their films in class 
it's not like I take him home and watch him and have time to think. And these films will, uh, you, will you know, it's like, like it's five minute film, two minutes in, there's t- it's terrible and there's nothing to say. And I'm sitting there going, all right, the lights are going to come up in two minutes and I got to have something to say. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the big challenges. So what did you say? I think what I did was I remember talking to about to one of my office mates and repeating the story to her. And I think it was before I really had made the giant revelation that the guy was just dumb as dirt. And so she just turned to me and she said, oh, sweetie, he's dumb. <laughs> so like, once she sort of said that, that kind of liberated me because really when they're at that, and he was sort of one of those students, I don't know if you guys have it, but they always tell you they're great in all their other classes and they don't know why they're having this problem <laughs> in your <laughs> class. Do you get that, right? It's you. You are the evil one. Everyone else thinks he's a genius, right? And so then, of course, I looked up his grades and, you know, he was on probation and he had like a 1.0 and, you know, he was nowhere. So he was also like, and then I just said that he didn't really write about the story. And so... Um, I failed him. <laughs> and then I, I love how all your stories. And then I failed at the end. They're dumb. They're dumb. Yeah, they all have the same ending. And then I failed them. I mean, I don't know. There isn't that much you could do. Like, I had this one student, and she wrote this sentence, depending, da-da-da, will depend, da-da-da-da. And I was trying to explain to her, I'm like, okay, your sentence is depending, will depend. And, and she's like, yeah. And I'm like, well... It doesn't really make any sense. It's like cycling will cycle or, you know, riding will ride. It's redundant and it doesn't really make any sense. And she's like, well, it makes sense to me. And this was oh. after we'd gone over, like, you know, sentence structure like eight million times. And finally I was just like, well, you know, read it again in the book and see if you understand it a little more. You know what I mean? You have to kind of cut them off. There isn't that much you can really do with them. Well, I always like the moments where, where again, someone comes to you and I'm going to write on this two-page story. And you know it's just not going to work. And you keep telling them. I mean, nothing's happened. They haven't written the story. They haven't really invested the time yet. And as a teacher, like, you know, this isn't going to work. I really suggest you do something else. And they still sort of forge ahead on their path. And it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, in one of those sort of teaching moments is, you know, what's going wrong. Again, the time hasn't put in and you can kind of steer them. You're doing everything in your power to steer them somewhere else. And they just keep moving forward. And then it always... Yeah, I always find with me, though, usually the thing will blow up and they'll kind of realize. And then I get to say, well, see, I told you so. You should listen to me sometime. <laughs> you know? And then it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. But I had to try it. And, you know, with our classes, it's like, well, sometimes you got to venture off and try something foolish and difficult. So there's usually some learning experience that will come out of it. I think there's there's different ways. I think you're right. You have to give them the benefit of the doubt and going, right, you're blazing into new territory and who knows you can come up with anything. But they're not. They're sort of blazing into non-territory. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, I think, I think you need the, the list. Of, we sit around uh, musicians talking about things you say to people after bad performances recitals your tone sounded good and uh, well yeah there there there's actually a whole list of these things good wasn't the word for it or, <laughs> um, well you've done it again yeah. um, in, in, in film it's always the cinematography was beautiful. Oh, that's man. that's the code for <laughs> the story was horrible. What so I always think the worst, those, like, the worst thing anyone can ever tell you is that your film looked really good. Like if that's the only thing they have to say, then it just means. But what if it's one of those horrible like production things where they don't even have the money to make the film look good and it doesn't look good? You say it looked good anyway. <laughs> One of my one of my favorite teaching stories. I won't say it's under the dumb category, but fantastic would maybe be the word. Is I teach this summer program. It's this sort of month long intensive, and I show up in the classroom one morning, and on the big center table, there's a couple of our really nice lights, sort of strewn on the table with uh, the electrical cords shredded, and I'd never seen anything like this 
in my life. And I kind of got there and like all the students were sitting around the table and kind of looking <laughs> at the lights and there's no note and no one's saying anything. And I just kind of go ballistic because this is, a, this is actually it's fairly expensive equipment. And again, I can't even conceive of how you would rip these heavy gauge light cords in half. And I mean, I go ballistic. I'm, I'm sure I'm swearing at him. I'm screaming, who did this? How, you know, I can't believe someone did this and doesn't have, you know, the guts to take responsibility. <laughs> and then finally, this sort of quiet kid who's a fairly good student raises his hand. He's like, well, it was me. And what happened uh, was we were filming this scene in the dorms in the elevator and you know there was enough light in the elevator to get a good exposure so i brought the light i brought one of the lights into the elevator and then the elevator door is closed (laughs) 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 at which point i go from being really furious to being horrified because the elevators in this place are these metal cages and i just had this vision of them getting electrocuted this live electrical cord (laughs) crying like five high school students And I'm, I'm sure I didn't start laughing, but it was like, wow, that's, I mean, it was like, I was amazed. Like, that's an amazing story. And I'm like, well, that explains one of the lights. What happened to the other? And he's like, well, <laughs> he's like, cause the, the, cause the light got cut in half the first time we didn't get the shot and we had to oh, do it again. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I was like, well, I'm really <laughs> glad you learned your lesson the first time. It was one of those, like, the first time I could see not right. thinking to someone just holding the, you know, right. the door stop. I mean, right. I, I would have figured that one out, you know. <laughs> but uh, the second time through was just, I mean, it was amazing. But then it was one of these stories that I just told over and over again to all my filmmaker friends. It's the world's greatest story. <laughs> so did they have to pay you for the equipment? Yeah, you kind of always say that they do, but... You know, always, always find some money to cover that stuff. And the thing that was funny about that kid is we actually let him into the program the next year. And we rarely ever take kids back. So I think it's also this moment that as a student, you can really screw up. Mm-hmm. And it's not the end of the world. I mean, I I think he was really sheepish the rest of the year. Right. And we, we really let him have it. But he was actually a really good student. And it was such a good story. And I got such mileage out of the story <laughs> that I, I couldn't hold it against him too much. Well, he sounded really committed to the project. Well, I mean, but that's... should do it again. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. I love the undaunted, like, we didn't get the shot, guys. We're going in again, right? I mean, most, most kids at that point would have freaked out. They ruined the equipment, would yep. have just shut down it's like now we're doing it again i still don't understand with a group of four people how no one the second time through said you know maybe we should i think if one kid though is really determined then all the other kids will just sort of like go along Fall I don't know. Yeah. all right jan you want to jump in with your sure yeah well this is a story from about three years ago I was teaching at the Academy of Art University which was then the Academy of Art College and since they've been accredited I was laughing (laughs) we were talking about accreditation because it was they were so obsessed with it you know they've got a little bit of an inferiority complex so I was teaching creative writing there and um which was actually a pretty good gig. Oh, and the other thing I was thinking is that, you know, they have an open admissions policy there. So it's basically, They'll you know, take your anyone. check clears, you're in, yeah. And it's, 15, and it's an expensive check. It was then $15,000 a semester. Wow. So, I, and I'm sure it's gone up since they added university to their name. And, um, and you know, I mean, I, I had students that were $100,000 in debt by the time they graduated, which, wow. you know, if you're going to Harvard Law, maybe, but anyway. But not undergrad. The Academy of Art. Academy of Art University. University. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
Well, um, they have nice ads and they have shuttle buses. They have a lot of buses. And they have a lot of buildings. And they have a lot of real estate. Yeah. So I didn't know actually much about the school. A friend of mine was teaching there and I got the job and, it, and I loved it. I had been teaching there three years. You know, the students, it was a mixed bag, the open admissions thing. There were definitely some, <laughs> some not so brilliant students, but, um, but very creative, very intuitive, and it was fun. So one class, it was getting toward the end of the semester, and they were turning in their final stories. It was a, a creative writing class. They were doing these short stories for their finals. They Xerox the stories for the rest of the class, and then we're going to talk about these stories the next week. Typical creative writing workshop structure. So I went home, and I was I pulled out the stories in bed that night. You know, there's a lot of sort of anime-style, sci-fi kind of stuff. Do they apply that anime-style to short stories yeah, as well. Yeah. That's There's a great. lot of What's stuff it? that you could read maybe when you're re- get your new Xbox and you're reading the text <laughs> when you're reading the manual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this gives me an idea for a story. Yeah. Or a lot of, you know, yeah, comic book almost could be comic book kind of stuff. But this one story was called A Complete Loss of Hope and it was um by a student who hadn't turned in very much. He was sort of on the verge of failing, but he turned in his final story, but I hadn't seen a rough draft of it or anything. So I started to read it, and it was—it it actually was very shocking to me how violent it was. It was about this young man who is a serial killer, and a kind of a first-person account of how much pleasure he takes in um, raping, maiming, killing people. I don't know you know, how much detail you want. I've seen a lot. A little of- more than that now. Okay, okay on page... Two, I think, of this 20-page story. There's a scene where he's talking about um, raping this girl in his high school, at a high school dance and going to the bathroom. And he, in the middle of having sex with her in the bathroom stall, he pulls out his pocket knife and slices off her nipples. And that's when he comes. That's when he gets really... And that was... Thanks, that's Danny, like, for asking yeah. for the extra <laughs> detail. The detail. Well, okay, but see, I just, I like to share that detail because that was kind of the least of it. And there's children involved and whole families and, you know, lots of sexual mutilation and all stuff. So I, you know, was disturbed by this story. I mean, not not just the details, but the passion behind it was actually fairly well written in terms of like lots of vivid imagery. Really, this kid, the narrator, um, you can't see my air quotes, but you know, it was sort of like <laughs> the, the author slash narrator was really into this. You could tell there was a re- real excitement behind this story. So I really didn't know what to do. So I, the next day, when I was, was at school. This, like- before Columbine, after Columbine? After that- Columbine. After, after Columbine, Columbine, before Virginia, Virginia did attack. attack. So I went to see my supervisor, who's the, the head of the writing department, who was a friend of mine, and showed him the story. And we talked about it, and he gave me some good advice, what I thought was good advice. He said, you know, you can use this as a sort of a platform to talk to the students about gratuitous violence in fiction and what what works, what doesn't, why isn't, you know, there's no character development here. And he advised me to bring in the first chapter of The Lovely Bones, which had just come out about a... It's narrated by a girl who get, has been raped and murdered. And so I thought, all right, you know, that's good advice. And he said, but, you know, I'm, I Xerox, I want to let you know, I'm, I'm Xeroxing a copy of the story to give to the humanities. Uh, yeah, she's the director of humanities. And um, so then I get a call from him later that night. Oh, well, Eileen, the director of humanities, was horrified by the story. And she Xeroxed a copy to give to the VP of education, Sue Rowley. Over the next 
three or four days. It's a week, you know, once a week class. So over, in between when the class met and, and the next meeting, this whole thing had amplified to the point where they had called in the FBI. They had called in the police department, the detectives, because they felt that um, the student might have, may have done some of the things that were detailed in the story. And they were going to expel the student, and they wanted um, me to offer the other students in the class counseling. They were going to bring in a psychologist. But the other to, students hadn't heard it yet, had they? Well, they had he, Xeroxed, he had Xeroxed the oh. story for the whole class. Oh, yeah. so he hadn't read, but he hadn't read, you weren't going to talk about it until the next class? Right. You so read that's it the at thing. Home. You read it at oh. home, you and make your you comments on the story. And and right. So in that interim period, in the interim all of a sudden, period, these all this, bureaucratic yeah. machinations. Yeah. And did and, the um, student know any of this was going on? I didn't know any of this, and I was told not to talk to the student because I said, well, why don't I talk to, you know, have a conversation with the student? And I mean, wouldn't you might, you know, before the FBI comes knocking on the right. door. But no. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, and so I'm supposed to call St- Sue, the VP of education. Be- one of the things that came up was I had gotten two low evaluation scores. They had just done the evaluations for this <laughs> class, and she was concerned that it might be classroom mismanagement that caused him to write this to story. To write the story. Yeah, because he was not an ex-murderer no. until you right. had not done any work until that point. Right. <laughs> and I've been there for three years and, get, you know, they love me and I've gotten all these great student evaluations and, and now two. So anyway, I call her and we didn't really talk about that, but she um, told me about the, the FBI coming in and the investigate. they were investigating murders that had taken place recently in the Bay Area to see if any details, you know, were the same. I was like, what do you think the story's going to be like in a pool of blood next to the <laughs> murdered victim? But And she <laughs> said, well... Um, it's how it works in the movies, usually. Yeah. Well, she said, there's some details in the story that someone couldn't know unless they had done some of these things. And I said, how would what you do know? you mean? Well, yeah. Well, well, how this would you a, know? Well, this was according to the police detectives or whoever she was talking to. And she said, well, for instance, he talks about the stench of blood. And, you know, most people don't even know that blood has a smell. Because well, no I was not. <laughs> I wasn't totally convinced by that. No but that one's was ever her. had bad meat in their refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the week passes. The next week um, I get to school and I'm supposed to, I'm standing with a couple of plainclothes police detectives, the head of security for the school, the vice president of the school, and we're, they're kind of hiding behind me, and I'm right at the <laughs> entrance door, and I'm supposed to intercept the student when he comes in, not the door to my classroom, but the door to the building, and and basically, you know, say, hey, you know, how's it going? Can you come with me? For, and then basically feed hmm. him to the wolves, right? Wow. I love that they set you up to Yeah, do that. I know. Why don't you yeah. just go to the kid's house or something? Well, like, why do you have to be there? Right. I don't know why. They didn't want him to be tipped off. But, of the, course, he doesn't A little thing show. like the First Amendment, not... Well, know, wait. No, no, <laughs> There's I, more. I, I know. <laughs> so anyway, he doesn't show up for class, which didn't actually surprise me. Anyway, so what? so I go down to teach my class after it's clear that he's not showing up. And I have my little conversation with the other students, you know, asking if anyone's been traumatized by this story. And of course, you know, half of them haven't read it. <laughs> they haven't done their homework. But so now they're, they're going to go They're scrambling through their backpacks, you know, to speed read this story. And then the ones who have read it, you know, are kind of laughing off my suggestion of, do you guys need counseling? Do you think you need a therapist to come in? You know, not really no one said, yes, I was disturbed. I mean, one... I think one or two students said, "Oh yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't finish reading it. It was really gross. It was, you know, grossed me out." Um, 
But I'd I think be more I was, disturbed about being in a class with this guy than reading the no story. No one seemed you know, disturbed by that. No. Which is kind of an interesting point because mm-hmm. the kid is like this kind of, yeah, he's 18, kind of pixie-ish kid who would like read stuff that he'd written in class and then and have swear words in it and he'd giggle as Chortle. he was reading them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, pretty much typical 18, I mean, in some ways seemed like, he wasn't I like that creepy. you described him as pixie-ish. He was pixie-ish, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, he he was not the kind of student that everyone was like, oh, we don't feel comfortable with that weird, creepy mm-hmm. guy, you know? Um, so he wasn't like the Virginia Tech guy. Apparently not. Although some things came out later, which I'll get to. But anyway, so I find out later that evening that they had actually gone to his dorm. They found him there in his dorm. They interrogated him. They packed up his stuff. They took him to the airport and they flew him back to Seattle where his parents lived, which again... Can you do is that? this legal? But apparently they did. He's 18. My guess is that he was he was humiliated and cowed and just said, "Okay, that's fine." You know, he, they probably they probably had to get his permission. I don't really know. Yeah, students so, don't know they have rights at all. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to them about that at all, and they have no idea that they have Especially, rights. Especially, yeah, 18. Yeah, his no. first semester at college. They have no idea. The next day, not much time had passed, and I get a call saying, the mother, his mother, the student's mother, had called Sue, and said. You know, our our son says that he was he was encouraged to write this sort of story by his teacher. <laughs> God, um, because the specific story she cited, I had given the class this story by David Foster Wallace called "The Girl with Curious Hair," which is from his first collection of stories. And in the story, it's a story about this '80s yuppie guy who hangs out with these punks. And in the st- and it's very satirical. You know, I give it to them in the when we're talking about unreliable narrators. The the narrator is sexist and racist and really this horrible person you'd never want to hang out with. But it's done in a very funny way, or at least the kind of thing you think is hilarious when you're 18. And but there is a detail in there where he talks about the narrator talks about he likes to put out a cigarette or put out a match on the back of this girl's legs. And I, I honestly had forgotten about that that detail was even in the story, <laughs> but a detail that also showed up in the student story. So they're up in arms about this. They want to know why I didn't tell them before that I had given the, my students this story. And you know, it was just, they'd never asked me for a supplemental materials list before I've you know, give them lots of stories that aren't in the textbook. All the teachers there do that. But all of a sudden, I was kind of on trial about this. And then I guess the next thing that happened quickly after that is they they sent the parents a copy of their son's story, A Complete Loss of Hope. And then they called back and said, oh, oh, never mind. He's going to get some counseling. You know, so <laughs> the, the threat of being sued was off the table for the moment. But I think they were really worried that some other, since this the story had been disseminated and some, maybe some other students' parents would get wind and there might be lawsuits happening, about to happen. So, they, you know, they were freaking out and I had to go... To it's kind of interesting that the parents would call right away without reading the story. Yeah, I had, mean, don't you think you would... No, you're defending no. your kid yeah. and you don't know all the things and you just think... You, why would you think your kid's a nut? You're going to argue on the side <laughs> of your kid, right? Yeah. And so you're going to defend your kid as your first response and then when you get more information... Oh wait, maybe Johnny needs some therapy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I go to these series of meetings and one of them the first one was, well, you know, no final decisions have may- been made as far as your situation here. It's like that was the first inkling I had about my <laughs> situation, situation here. Yeah. Okay. So you're thinking about firing me. Um, but your attitude will go a long way toward determining what happens here. I was like, well, 
oh, so if I'm chipper and perky about it, like I really didn't. And so of course I immediately had this horrible attitude. It was like, you've got to be kidding me. So basically I was asked for a full list of supplemental materials I had um, given the students in class. I was asked for a character reference because I also taught at the writing lab there as a tutor. They wanted like a written explanation from me about why I had not read the story before I had disseminated it to class. Did they ask you for David Foster Wallace's home address so the FBI could go? No, but they they all, oh, one of the things that was so funny, they all read that story, you know, and, and um, the humanities director, she said, you know, uh, Sue wanted me to read that David Foster Wallace story, and so I, I just had 10 minutes, and I just sat down on my, my desk and read it, and I mean, with no context around it, I was, I have to tell you, I was, I thought it was really risque. And, you <laughs> it's know, and college. She said, she said, you don't just hand the st- students this story without any context, do you? <laughs> and I told her, well, no, it's in the context of, we're talking about unreliable narrators, and, but no, I don't tell them how to read the story before I hand it out. I mean, we discuss it like, and then I reminded them that the textbook, the officially sanctioned textbook has had a Tim O'Brien story with like very explicit violence, a story about rape by Alice Monroe, a story about a kid taking acid by <laughs> Michael Cunningham. And, and they were, they kind of laughed and they were like, yeah, Sue really doesn't like that textbook either. <laughs> <laughs> now they tell yeah. so, it's kind of Yeah. It's kind of amazing. And then, oh, and also I'm told that this is a very conservative College and the founders, you know, were very conservative. They have not changed their idea of the canon in 75 years. And I'm told have they been around for 75 years? They've been around for 75 years. And and you know, I know that (laughs) buying real estate. Yeah, buying real estate. (laughs) That's that's how they managed to survive. They're on the front page of the paper today because they're they've they are eliminating the Lorraine Hansberry Theater to turn into a gymnasium. The, really? the one African American theater with its own stage in maybe the country, but certainly in, in California. Right. And why they, do art they, students they, need a gymnasium? That, well, it is a full. It's a university. Oh, it's that's a right. Uni- I keep forgetting. University. <laughs> Just wait. They'll, they'll be in the in the NCAA playoffs yeah. before long. You know, Pretty soon, all our kids will be going to the Academy Duke, of Art. Duke versus the Academy of Art NCAA finals next year. <laughs> Yet they seem With to that. have this incredibly thick skin because I mean, after all this happened, well, one detail I just want to go back to is when they were telling me how conservative this place was. The humanities director tells me, "Yes, you know, I was told I teach an intro to." art history or something. She said, I was told I can't teach about the male gaze. I can't teach about <laughs> queer theory. They had to teach or you male to take gaze. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, and this is a, an art college in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, the male gaze. So, we teach, we teach 16 year olds about the yeah. male gaze in Western Civ. Yeah. Not in an intro class. She tells me maybe in a graduate class or an upper division class. But just even conceptually, I mean, even forgetting San Francisco, that it's an art college right. that's conservative. It's it's more commercial art, but yeah, yeah, I know. So I hadn't really known this stuff before, and I think in a way they their writing program was kind of cut loose. They didn't until they had problems with it. They didn't really look at what was happening right. there, and then I became the scapegoat for a lot of stuff. And then it was the semester ended. We broke for December holiday, and I still hadn't been told. I had been offered my classes way before this for next the next semester, and um, then I get an email saying they've decided not to rehire you. A couple of months later, a reporter called me from the Chronicle and wanted to know my story. How and did the reporter from the Chronicle know? He another teacher there at the academy, Alan Kaufman, mm-hmm. who's a poet and and writer, novelist. Um, 
he had been really upset by this and had made some calls. So I think I'm pretty sure Alan called. Anyway, so they, there was a big front page story in the Chronicle. Mm-hmm. And after that, huge protests at the school. You know, once people knew about it, then a bunch of writers came out. Dave Eggers, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, uh, Daniel Handler, Michael Shaben. Like all, Michael Shaben wrote a, an op-ed for the New York Times about it. Like it got a lot of press and people, there were several protests right there at the university. And yet, oh, Salman Rushdie wrote a letter he was the director of Penn at the time and wrote this really eloquent letter. I wish I had brought it. It was sort of like everything I wish I could say about the incident, right. that it was sort of an opportunity presented itself to deal in an educational setting with these issues yeah, that everyone's yeah. so afraid of. And instead, instead of, of shuttling instead of doing that, Seattle right. and firing the teacher. Right. Instead how, of doing that, they just handled it the worst possible way. How Now, how was a student reacting when all of a sudden there was a sort of The student I never around. have heard from again. And apparently the press really tried to find the student. I got lots of calls asking me for his full name, which I didn't give. Didn't give. Apparently they did find him in Seattle and he, he did not, either he or his parents, you know, I'm not sure which, but he never made any kind of statement. And I was forbidden to talk to him during that time when I probably could have. Um, See, but you guys aren't in a union, right? No union. Yes, you were in a union. They could never do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No union, and they've really resisted any attempts to. Of course, because you know, the, the irony in this, and and you touched on it, Doreen, earlier. Um, I was at a briefing for the San Francisco Conservatory faculty, and we were being briefed about the FERPA regulations, the Federal Education Reporting Protocol, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Rolls Act. off the rolls off the tongue. Yes, <laughs> FERPA. Um, it, basically, it was informing the faculty of what the student rights that you said they are unaware of. The thing that was troubling me is that this federal law, once a kid is in college, even if they're not 18, there are all these things that the that the college cannot do to c- connect with the parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I never seen any parents. Uh, amazing things, like the one that sticks in my mind, is a family who's, who has been sending the kid tuition money and they had dropped out of school, and the family shows up for graduation. Yeah. But the the thing that was troubling me is that we leave these same eighteen year olds in June. Three months later, all of their rights have reversed. And and whereas and it, you know in in May or June, the first person you would have called was the parents, and they would have been on board, and you would have found out if they were getting help or whatever. Suddenly, three months later. They're only three months older. They're in a strange city. They're in a dorm. And suddenly none of that is available to them. It seems like a very peculiar juxtaposition. Well, but I don't know. I feel like part of college is like in our school, we're very big on like academic freedom. You know, like I get to pick my books for my intro to lit class. No one ever looks at my books. They, you know, they can't. I can't imagine a situation where they'd be like, you can't teach that. I can teach anything I want. Um, and they're very, very, very big on academic freedom. And also, for us as a teacher, particularly like in the remedial classes, we're very big on like they need to think of themselves as adults now. And they need to start be- taking responsibility because they do all kinds of crazy things. Like they work 40 hours a week and they take 18 units and, you know, and they're partying. And it's like, dude, this is not going to work out for you. You know, you need to start thinking <laughs> about yourself as an adult. And like you have to make choices and your mommy and daddy aren't here anymore. And I go through that a lot. I think that's OK. I think at some point in time you have to, you know, become an adult. And it's just getting later and later and later at where you're an adult. And 
part of college is like, you know what, this is the big world. And here's a, here's a story with some sex in it. Here's some story with some violence in it. And, you know, you can always choose not read something or talk to me about something or do an alternative topic, but these are real world things. And that's what we're going to talk about in college. That's the whole point. So I think it is the point to like bring them out there and make them grown ups. Well, and a lot of schools, I'm sure state included, have a lot of support systems going on. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing about the academy. They didn't have a counseling department. They did not have a psychologist on staff. Really? I think they Mm. do now. And that's, you know, the one thing I kind of feel like, okay, that's good. Nothing else came out of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but I mean, that was interesting because I said, is there somewhere where we can, you know, can't make a student go to counseling, but, you you know, talk to the student about it, offer it. But, you know, no, all they have was referrals. So did you think about suing or... I did. I did think about suing and ultimately, and I even talked to a couple of lawyers about it and ultimately it came up that since it's a private college, You're at you will. know, and I was an adjunct right. that really, you know, they could give me any, and they never ever gave me any reason. So, but you know, if, if it came to the legal question, they could say, oh, well, she got these several, you know, bad evaluate, negative evaluations. They could say anything they want Lines, really. Yeah. yeah. So my my question would be if you could turn the hands of time back, what would you have done differently? I don't know. I I don't know if I would have done anything different. You know, I I think about it, and certainly at the time I thought, oh, I never should have shown this story to right. my supervisor. Mm-hmm. I should have just dealt with it in class. I'm capable of doing that. But but, but you need. I mean, you needed to show it to your supervisor because right, as a right. teacher. You're like, how do I handle That's this? Oh, and, I, and you would have been fired for sure if, if it had gone <laughs> it your supervisor nuts. from a student right. who was bothered right. by right. it. Right. No, I'm just thinking that, you know, they interviewed, I believe it was the English teacher of the the uh, Virginia Tech mm-hmm. guy who said, who, who was talking about similar things. Yeah. When, the, uh, when they were handing out stories, he was writing bizarre stories and he didn't want to share uh, his ideas with the rest of the class yeah. and and she that kind of thing and him one on one and he wouldn't take his sunglasses off and it, his hood exactly yeah. and all yeah. of that and I, my heart was really going out to her because I thought yeah. you know she's sitting on a powder keg yeah. here and any misstep I mean you don't know if the pixie is a monster you know Hannibal <laughs> Lecter behind <laughs> behind that little pixie look but um, it is unnerving. It without that kind of backup. Well, and the other thing that happened after the Virginia Tech case is there was a Chronicle article the next day, and of course they let the Academy have have a mouthpiece for saying, "Well, you know, this almost happened to us, and look, we really took care of it. You know, we <laughs> yeah, really yeah. have to be I, responsible I for that. our students." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and wow. I, wrote the, I wrote the writer and was just like, "I cannot believe you allowed." Their really their PR person to have two paragraphs in the Chronicle about how they did the right thing, you know. But anyway. Well, well, schools are terrified of being sued. I mean, definitely a student can have the most cockamamie reason in the world, and they'll let a student grade grieve like way, 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 way up the thing because they're so afraid the yeah. students, as opposed to saying, look, you didn't do, you know, competent work in the course, that's it. You didn't pass, take it again, that's that. Yeah. But they'll let them grieve and they'll let them complain because they're so afraid and they's going to happen. And they, yeah. they don't back up their staff enough because they're just way too petrified of being sued. So, I mean, it, it's different. Like my immediate supervisors would definitely definitely back me up because they know me but like you know those people in the administration building you know they get you know i think also post columbine schools are afraid of that psycho student who might be out there and and students are too i mean i've i feel like i've seen that 
in a certain way, just the way really? students react to alternative weirdo types. The huh. kid, the kids who like the violent videos and heavy metal and know stuff about guns or stuff. And as a teacher, like, oh, wow, you're 16 <laughs> and you know that stuff. Am I afraid? Or are you just kind of this normal angsty 16 year old? Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's. Well, in high school, I think do those he, kids get picked on or do they get shunned? Like in college, those kids get shunned. They don't yeah, get picked on. No one would pick on them. But they, I, I know of a situation that, uh, with one of my colleagues who was talking to – it's very unusual at our high school that anybody w- – is into firearms, but one of our colleagues was talking with a student who was talking about his rifle collection. And <laughs> our colleague was getting a little nervous, and he just says, well, what do you do with these guns? And he says, I shoot things. Define things. That, that was kind of the end of the conversation. <laughs> it's, it's and sometimes the teacher, you also don't with, know where to go right. with that. Right. Like, so, okay. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for playing. So anyway, on page 42. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because, I mean, I had a student... This is pre-Columbine who was from small, a small town in Wyoming who loved Metallica, who loved blowing up things like pumpkins and stuff. He was, it was a little like, he's an oddball, right? And then, I mean, and it's strangely, he went on and started his own effects companies. And like last time I talked to him, he was like <laughs> uh, overturning big rigs for the movies. Like, what are you doing today? I've got to flip over an 18-wheeler with a ton of gas on the back. All right, see you later. And then it's like, that's just, right. you know, that's the stuff that turns him on. And he, he channeled it in this really good way, yeah. and he's a good kid. But you'd be, if I had him today, you'd be looking at him going like, yeah. I hope he's well, not crazy. And also art school, you know, art well, school kids. Yeah. And they're, yeah. And a lot of them, I mean, that's what's interesting. And about, they're trying to get a rise out of you right. and be shocking yeah. and confrontational. And how do you be edgy today? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, splatter fiction was really in. Um, I mean, I guess it probably still is, but it was kind of a big yeah. thing then. Yeah. And I thought, all right, he's into that. And I was told, yeah, he's really into that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know. And it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the thing is that you did, there's nothing that you did wrong. Absolutely nothing. And so it's just like circumstances. It's just sometimes you're a victim of the political circumstances of the time, and, and that's what happens. You know, yeah. there isn't, the, what could you have done differently? Nothing. You, had, you had gave them provocative stories, you shared their ideas. And he was expelled on what grounds? Or was he expelled? Oh, I don't know. Or was it he just was invited to. Uh, Grow in another direction. Yeah, <laughs> in another state. I don't know. No, you're the answer to you're that. Expe- like in our, you know, uh, codes of conduct, which I know because we do a topic on hate speech, so we actually looked at the codes of conduct. And if you're considered, you know, a, like a threat to the campus community, or you know, you're not in a state where you could be like educated about it, then um, you're asked to leave. It's also, I think, different for a state school right. and a public oh, school. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And private school, they can just say, you're not coming back, period. And yeah, state school, they have to go through sign work. something yeah. when, they, you know, when their check clears originally that right. says, right. you know, we can kick you out for any reason. Right. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I think that's... Well, and at the educational level, the thing that's, I mean, a tragedy that overstates it, but it's like you, had this, you could have had this amazing sort of teaching moment right. in the classroom right. where you really start exploring those issues and right. how to express things and what's appropriate Which and what's not appropriate. Which is what art school is about, any school, any about. school, but particularly a creative yeah. endeavor. You but know? It, you know, then confronted with that, the school just shunts it. Yeah. You know, just mm-hmm. just shuts it down, and there's no discussion. And then, yeah, right. And the that's what you asked if she had addressed it, if she would have gotten into deeper, you know, hotter water. Well, well they've done worse than that. Hopefully, you know, the yeah. best scenario would be that I could have addressed it with support from 
my supervisors from the administration, and that that seemed to be what was going to happen. And then, like the, and then that kid gets observed, and is he okay and just expressing right. this stuff? Yeah. And or there's is some he... counseling, right? Yeah, maybe instead of the plain clothesman, you could have had your supervisor in the classroom right. at the time right. you discussed right. a, plan, the, right. a, a, uh, a plain clothes therapist <laughs> in a, monitoring the class. I mean, yes, yeah. plain clothes therapist. That's why you need a union. Yeah. 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 It's true because the union—that's that's, how they're made. The unions would support you for that. They would, you know, in our school, they would never let you for academic freedom. Yeah, you're not incompetent. I mean, if you're incompetent, it's one thing, but you're not. You were totally competent, and you just had academic freedom, and they fired you for it. Yeah, I feel we should end on a, a more happy note. <laughs> tell, tell the toaster story again. <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. Yeah, yeah. so I failed them. Yeah, <laughs> so I failed. Them. If they wouldn't have kicked him out, I would have failed him. <laughs> to happier jobs in retail somewhere. <laughs> I heard there are a lot of Starbucks up in yeah, Seattle. Exactly. All right. Well, very good. Well, thank you all for uh, coming and sharing Thanks for stories. Having us. All right. You've been listening to the Nest of Vipers podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, drop by our website at nestofviperspodcast.typepad.com and leave us some comments. Also, you can check out movie clips of the music, movies, and other cultural references we make at our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com backslash Nesta Vipers podcast. <laughs>